Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. It's good to be with you. My name is Vince. I'm one of the elders here at the Town Church, on staff also as one of the pastors. So if we haven't met, love to meet you at some point. I'm going to point out a couple things very quickly, and then we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. Our elementary students are in here with us. We value that. Every other week, uh, they're in here, and it's not an accident. We value it. Uh, We value being together as a church family, and so um, we're glad you are in here, and because of that, I'm going to ask you kids a question. So I want to hear from you. This is your opportunity. I see parents like, it's your chance, it's your chance. They live stream this. You'll be on TV, right? Um, Whatever. Um, (laughs) Here's your question. How do you know that your parents love you? Let's hear it. A lot. Wait, say it again. They clothe and feed you. (laughs) Basic necessities, but that is is, uh, showing love. I think the government also... Demands that of them, but <laughs> they tell you stories. They spend that valuable time with you like that. That's good. What else? How do you know your parents love you? Kids. Anyone? Don't make me. I'm just going to start calling on maybe adults. Um, how do you know your mom and dad love you? How do you know that? How do you experience that? I think we all, we all wrestle or, or think through this, not wrestle with it. We all think through this. How do we know someone loves us? How do we know that someone loves us? And, and when we talk about being loved, we would probably talk about um, how we've been treated, right? Some of the things that, that you all have said are, are the ways you have been treated. Uh, and that's, that's a, a good way to consider those things. Right, you would say, "Well, you think you think of me before you think of yourself, uh, or or you give up things that you enjoy to do the things that I enjoy." That's a way to show you give me hot coffee and not cooked carrots. Um, you give uh, you give affirmation, words of affirmation to me when I need those. You say encouraging things to me. There, there are these actions where we know that we are loved. How do you know that someone loves you? The ways in which love is shown are probably different for everyone. We all have different ways that, that we're shown love and we experience that. But can I, can I ask all of us, not just kids, but can I ask all of us to get in, into the mind of um, the parent-child relationship, and think about um, the ways in which you either experienced love as a child or um, desired to experience love as a child but did not. Um, would that list ever include something like this? 
I know that my mom and dad loved me because they disciplined me. Would it ever include that? Uh, probably not, right? That, that probably wasn't at least at the top of your list. Maybe down below you would consider some of those things. You think about your interaction with your parents. When, when you were a child, would you have looked at them and said to them, I know that you love me because look how worn that wooden spoon is, right? I don't know if you can say that in 2023. So uh, filter that however you want and apply that in your head however you want. You, you probably wouldn't have talked about it in those kinds of ways. Right? The, the discipline of a parent is a way in which we are shown love. Now, I want to help us out here. Um, we have to remember that discipline is different than punishment. Okay? Um, they're, they're not the same thing. Those two things are not the same. Punishment is often a justified action of retribution toward the one who is in the wrong. Right? Or, or maybe there's, there's other definitions like that. It, uh, punishment may or may not teach a lesson. That's not the end goal necessarily. Punishment may or may not be done out of love. Punishment um, may not be done in the context of relationship at all. Right? You may be put into a position where you are administering punishment, but you have no relationship with the person at all. In many cases, punishment um, may be done out of anger or a feeling of revenge or retribution toward the one who's in the wrong. So that's punishment. Discipline is a very different thing altogether. Discipline is the loving, yet often difficult and painful action of teaching and correcting and restoring. Discipline is the loving action of, uh, of, of correcting, of teaching, of, of restoring. The end goal is, is restoration. Right? The, where the end goal of punishment is retributive justice through a painful action, the end goal of discipline is restoration born out of love and born out of care and born out of a relationship that's there that needs to be restored. So keep those in mind that those are different things. As we work through Ezra chapter 5 this morning, we're going to, have to see how God disciplines his people, his children, who are already facing opposition, who have lost sight of God's plan, what we saw last week, who've lost sight of God's plan, who have in a lot of ways given up on God's plan. Last week we, we saw how the people were rebuilding the temple and faced outside opposition. They decided to stop work on rebuilding the temple. They decided to stop working on the very place where they were to worship God. They faced a very discouraging, what, 16 years of opposition, and they decided enough. We're done. We quit. They decided to, we could put it this way, they decided to disobey and dishonor God. This morning, we see that their disobedience leads to discipline. 
and that that discipline then leads them back to obedience. And and opposition may continue to come, and and because why? We talked about this last week. Every good work of God will face opposition. But that doesn't give us the freedom then. It doesn't give them the freedom to disobey, walk away, give up. In love, we see this morning, and I think this is the thing that, that will be applied to us. In love, God disciplines his children to restore them. To restore them to what? To restore them back to right relationship with him. And what is a right relationship with him? A, a relationship of worshiping him of honoring him. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to go back and forth between the book of Ezra, which we're working through, the book of Ezra, and the prophecy of Haggai. So we're going to be flipping back and forth. So if you have a Bible, not just the the Ezra journal, but a Bible, I want you to grab that and turn to the book of Ezra. Turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 1, just reading verse 1 to to start off. Look at verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets of God. They were men who were called by God to speak words from God to the people of God. That's what a prophet is. Men of God who were called by God to speak the words of God to the people of God. And usually the prophets spoke God's word to the people in relation to their sin or in relation to their disobedience or in relation to what um, God was calling them to, to restore them back to. This is what Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, were doing. They spoke to the people about their sin. Now, where do we where do we see this? If, if you would, turn over, keep your finger there, keep a bookmark there, or keep your app there, whatever, however you do it, and turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai is still in the Old Testament. Um, it's a prophet near, um, near the end of the, the Old Testament, so in the, the first half of your Bible. You've got the, the longer prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you've got the shorter prophets or the minor prophets uh, near the end of the Old Testament. Here's a little trick that I learned, H-Z-H-Z, right? Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, H-Z-H-Z. So you've got Haggai in there. Turn to the book of Haggai. I should turn to it too because I'm going to be reading from it, not just telling you how to get there, but also getting there. Um, Haggai chapter 1, look at verse 2. This is Haggai's prophecy um, to the people in this same time period. Verse 2 of Haggai 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Now remember, I said this last week, paneled houses, don't think late 70s, early 80s, panel in your basement to cover up the concrete. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about luxurious homes. Is it time for you to dwell in your luxurious houses while this house, God's house, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
Skip down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, again, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Listen, the the people of God were spending time building luxurious homes for themselves, and they've given up on building the temple. They've lost sight of God's plan. They've given up on it altogether. They've stopped. In a sense, what have they done? They've given up on the worship of God. There are people called by God to worship him, and they've been called then to rebuild the temple and to be restored in their worship of God, but they have disobeyed. And their disobedience leads to God's discipline. Their disobedience leads to God's discipline in the form of what? A drought. God causes a drought to fall on the people and their land and their animals and all of their work. God disciplines them for their disobedience. Now, Back to the um, parent-child relationship. This is where our minds go. Out of love, parents discipline their children when they disobey them to teach them. They they discipline their children when they disobey to teach them and restore them to to do what? To reconcile them back to right relationship with them. There's been a, a break in their relationship because there's been disobedience, there's been disrespect, there's been dishonor, and so they, there's discipline to restore them back to right relationship. And, and often that's through painful, difficult lessons. Our sons, we, we have a, a, a whole lot of sons, our sons could disobey in some way, and if I reacted in anger toward them by beating them, which I've never done, right boys, shake your heads, yes, uh, by beating them with no explanation, with no follow-through, that would be punishment on my part. That would be a punishment toward them. I could take away privileges with no explanation. Right? They could come home from school and their bed's gone and you don't get a bed now. Right? With no explanation or whatever. Um, with no explanation, just to be cruel, there, there's punishment there. And, and I'll confess, there have been times when I have punished my sons out of anger. Parents, you've probably been there as well. And by God's grace, hopefully I'm, I'm growing to be a more loving, more thoughtful, um, more thoughtful in my approach uh, to discipline them, to correct their disobedience, and more than that, to restore them back to right relationship, this broken relationship between me and them or their mom and them. And to be clear, by God's grace also, God is working in each of them 
and, and discipline is becoming less and less and less, and it's, it's very minimal. And now there's conversations that we have about how things are to go. That's that parent-child relationship. For the people during the time of Ezra chapter 5, a God-produced drought began. It was brought upon them. Everything they had felt the effects of this drought. This drought had, was absolutely the discipline of God on them. They were disobedient, and their eyes had turned away from God. They'd lost sight of God's plan. They'd given up on God's plan altogether. So God, by his power over all things, even the weather, caused a drought. Why? To shame them? To No, no, no. To, to bring his people back to him in repentance. The goal was their return. The goal was their restoration to right relationship. You may be wondering, well, how does Haggai's prophecy from God, how, how does that show that this is done out, out of love and out of a, a plan to restore them? Yeah, God caused the drought, right? How is that to bring restoration. We'll look on in Haggai. Haggai chapter 1, if you're still there, look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, what'd they do? Say it. Obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what does the Lord say? I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did what? Worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. When discipline takes its desired effect, we generally see a few signs. We see it here. I think when we see it in our own lives as well. When discipline takes its desired effects, we generally see a few signs. First, if discipline works... If discipline has taken its desired effects, we see repentance, obedience. We see this turning back to, this this repentance or obedience. Immediately after hearing the prophecy of Haggai, here comes a drought, it's on you. The people do what? They obey. They turn back to God. There's obedience. They obey the voice of God. Of the Lord. That's the first sign. The second one is we see a restoring of right relationships. So it's not just the people obeying, leaning toward God, moving toward God, but God says to the people, What? I'm with you. I'm restored back to you as well. I'm with you. I'm not pushing you away or, or removing myself from the relationship. I'm not acting out in anger to harm you. I did these things so that you would return to me in obedience, and I am with you. Our relationship is restored, brought back together. We see in Haggai's prophecy that God's discipline leads to obedience and restoration. So disobedience leads to God's discipline. 
God's discipline leads to obedience and restoration. Now, flip back to Ezra chapter 5. Again, verse 1 introduces us to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and their words to the people from God who was over them, we're told. And then look at, look at verse 2 of chapter 5. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Do you see how these books go together? We've got to see how the, 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 the Bible's woven together. So even though our Bibles position these books, books and books apart, we've got to see how these are woven together. So the same names are used. All of this is tied together, and, and they are, are shoved together here in this place. The prophets of God were there supporting them. The leaders of Jerusalem were rebuilding the temple. We could assume that it wasn't just the leaders, that it was everyone. Haggai tells us that everyone comes back. <laughs> to jump in and help. And we're told that the prophets of God were there supporting them. Supporting them how? Supporting them by reminding them of God's words. Supporting them by by reminding them of God's call to obedience. The role of the prophet was to speak the words of God to the people. They were doing just that. They, They were reminding the people of God's words to them. To worship him, that was the end goal, to be restored. So stay in right relationship. Worship happens in the temple, so the prophets are there supporting them by reminding them. So rebuild it. This is your task. Rebuild. God's discipline of his people leads to obedience and also restoration. Or at least that's the desired outcome. Have you experienced God's discipline? You experienced a time in life where you have felt the discipline of God, known the discipline of God is there, where you know that you have been called or commanded by God to to live a certain way, to obey him in certain ways. You've been instructed by God in his word to do something. You know it. And you have instead intentionally gone against his desire, against his will, against his law for you, against his word. Or maybe you'd say, well, no, I haven't done that. I haven't just blatantly gone against it. Maybe for you it's, a, it's an inadvertent sin that you didn't know at the time it was sin, but as you look back, you see, oh, yeah, that was sin, but still you choose to lean in that direction. And in the moment, in that moment, or in the, the moment of what you have experienced uh, through, through whatever it is you're walking through, you may not see God's hand of discipline, but as you look back, you see it. Have you experienced that? Have you, have you walked through a season like that? God desires our worship. And as we saw a few weeks ago, I think we need to hear this again. God desires our worship, and he will do whatever it takes to draw us back to him. He may be using hardships in your life. He may be using suffering as a means to draw you back to him. Have you experienced that? Have you, 
Have you faced trial? Have you faced suffering? Have you, have you faced hardship? And then realized in the middle of that that God is using that very thing to, to change you, to transform you, to soften you, to, to turn your heart back to him in full repentance. Have you experienced that? If that's the, the case, it may be worth considering at least one of three things this morning. I don't know how to, how, to, how to work this out in an outline, so I've got a statement and then a couple questions to consider. If you have experienced what you think is the discipline of God, then it may be worth considering at least one of three things. First, just the statement. Um, and, and here's the statement. Not all suffering or hardship is necessarily discipline from God. Okay? Not all suffering or hardship is necessarily discipline. What I mean by that is this. Let me tell you a little story just to get, get our heads in, into what I'm, I'm getting at. I had a studio mate when I was in art school. We shared a studio together. And because of um, some of the circles that she had been in before, Christian circles that she had been in before, she made it a joking, um, uh, a regular joke of hers was to was to ask the question when anything went just a little bit wrong, she would ask the question, do you have unconfessed sin in your life, right? As kind of this joke about how, how she had come out of, of some of these circles she had been in. So somebody would stub their toe on the way up the stairs to our studio. Do you have unconfessed sin in your life? And she would just always say that. And so, um, you know, lock your keys in your car. Do you have unconfessed sin in your life? So she was always just pushing back in a joking way, like everything that is happening to you is God's discipline of you to show you that you should be going a different direction. And, and she was joking, but, but can't our minds kind of go there at times? Not all suffering or hardship is necessarily discipline. And here's why. We live in a fallen world affected by the consequences of sin. Your stub toe, your keys locked in your car, whatever pain uh, that, that comes from those things it is, is probably, at least, at least generally speaking, a part of the effect of the fall and, and maybe not discipline. So let's be, let's be um, clear not to jump quickly to say this is God's discipline of us. That's, that's the first statement, just, just a broad statement. Then a couple questions to ask. The first question is this. But are you in unrepentant sin? Are you? And, I, and I'm actually asking the question, not for you to respond out loud, um, this, but this isn't rhetorical. This is for you to consider. Are there sins in your life right now that you know about and have chosen to not confess them as such? Would you consider that? If the Spirit brings to mind, even right now, if the Spirit brings to mind ways in which you've chosen to not repent, friend, listen, Today is the day to confess and to ask God to help you in turning from that sin. Here's the caution, if you will. Here's the warning, if you will. If you are one of God's children, 
and you persist in sin, he will turn your heart back. He will. If you are truly one of God's own and you persist in sin, he will turn your heart. He will win your heart back. He will teach you. He will correct you. He will, he will restore your heart back to himself. And also, you know this, discipline is painful. So the question, are you today in unrepentant sin? The Spirit brought something to mind. And then secondly, the second question, are you experiencing right now God's discipline in your life for the purpose of drawing you back to worship him? That's the end goal. For him to restore you back to him. If you ask that question of your heart and you know that there's discipline in your life, can I ask this of you? What's your response? What's your response there? The only right response that God is looking for is turn from that sin and turn back to me. Worship. Worship me. Now, can we all hear this? So, so um, didn't know how to get that in an outline, so it's kind of a separate thing, but, but something we need to hear. Can we all hear this? If you are a child of God, if he by his grace has called you to himself and saved you, what you are currently experiencing, if it's some sort of trial, some sort of hardship, some sort of, of, of um, suffering that you're walking through that you experience as discipline or you've thought through, yeah, maybe this is discipline, what you are experiencing right now, Christian, friend, brother, or sister, is not punishment, I said this several weeks ago when when I came back and and talked through some of the things that we have walked through as a church. What we are walking through, if we're we're followers of Jesus, is not punishment. Punishment is, is for those who are not God's children. And listen, it has to do with separation. Punishment has to do with exclusion from God's family. Separation, but our ongoing unrepentant disobedience as God's children leads to God's loving discipline of us. And God's discipline is a kindness, and that kindness is meant to lead us to repentance so that our repentance would move us to worship the God who's called us to be his own. Does that make sense? So, so all of that is a process, but Christian brother or sister, what you're facing right now is not punishment from God. It may be his nudge, it may be his poke, it may be his discipline to call you back to himself. Hear that. In the midst of thinking through all of these things, um, the thought came to mind this week. Man, this would be so much easier obedience would be so much easier if we had prophets supporting us, right? Just kind of all along the wings, prophets supporting us. I read through what we see in Ezra and what we see in the prophets, and and I think, oh man, it would be so much easier if we just had a wing of prophets reminding us, telling us where we were straying. That's where my mind went first, right? Don't judge me yet. 
It's where my mind went first. There are times when I actually desire to obey, and it, and it would sure, have a, a sure be nice to have a, a team of prophets ready to support me, ready to call me back, uh, call me away from my sin, and keep me moving in the right direction. Wouldn't that be nice? That's where my mind went first. And then I realized the absurdity of that when I recalled Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that says what? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That son, Jesus, also told us that he was not leaving us alone, that he was leaving something better, a helper. He was leaving the spirit to encourage us, to convict us, to challenge us on our Sin, And we also have been told that we have the word of God, the Bible, to reveal sin to us. So here's where I landed, you judges. Here's where I landed in my thinking as I walk through that in my mind. We have a much stronger support team than the prophets to show us our sin, right? We have a much stronger support team. If we're truly God's children, we have Jesus who will never leave us. We have the spirit to guide and convict us. We have the word of God to instruct us that's sharper than any two-edged sword and and, and able to pierce into those places that that we would want to stay hidden. We have a, a much greater support team than a wing of prophets. Our ongoing choice to, to move towards sin it is then not often out of ignorance, right? It, when, when our sin is left unconfessed, when it's left unrepentant, we have to expect then the discipline of God. Again, not for our harm, not for our separation, not from our removal from the family, but for our restoration to lead us to obedience because God, our Father, loves us. And wants to be reconciled to us. Wants to be near us. Wants us to hear his words to us. I'm with you. Friends, do you sense that this morning? The love of God near you? Now our tendency, I think, or at least my tendency, is to probably think, well, after the discipline of God... If it's taken its desired effect, that I'm then moving back toward obedience, that I've learned from this and I'm moving toward obedience, after our return to obedience, here's where my mind goes, then things are going to get easier, right? Then the road is paved well. We see in the beginning verses of this chapter that the people of God get back to work on the temple, all of them, right? They all get back. But are things smooth? Is this Ezra chapter 5, the end? Right? Is this how it ends? They've been disciplined by God to draw them back to obedience. Does now God pave the way for them to have a leisurely walk through obedience in a beautiful temple? And look at verse 3 of Ezra chapter 5. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? Here's what we see. Opposition continues. 
Yeah, maybe you face some discipline. Maybe they've faced some discipline, but that doesn't mean that the opposition's done because every good work of God will absolutely be opposed. Remember, the work has stopped, and it's been, what, 16 years since the the decree was made by Cyrus to allow the people to come back to rebuild. It's obvious now that a new governor and and, and other Persian officials have, have no idea that this group of people have been given permission to rebuild. And so the people, again, face opposition in the rebuilding of this place of worship. Simply because we face the loving discipline of God and there's been restoration doesn't mean we will not face opposition when we return to obedience. That opposition is not necessarily discipline from God, but it's there because every good work of God will be opposed. And that's now what the people are facing. And so our friend, Tatanai the Tattletale, writes a letter to Darius. Look at verse 6. This is a copy of the letter of Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates. The governors who were in the province beyond the river sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace, that's kind, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that his house, this house of God, should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king for the rebuilding of his house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Tatanai the Tattletale sends a letter to Darius to see if he actually has on file, actually has in his remembrance, uh, this permission that has been granted to rebuild. Right? I'm governor over this province and, uh, and, and haven't given you permission. I haven't issued any building permits for you. That would come from me, and I haven't done that. 
The people face opposition yet again, and that should be expected, right? The, the time, this time the, the building didn't stop though, did it? Do you notice that? doesn't say, and the building stopped. Why? We skipped over a verse. don't know if you noticed this. Look at verse 5. Jump back to verse 5. Why did the building not stop? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Why did the building not stop? Why didn't it stop? Was it, was it Tatanai's kindness? You all carry on. We'll, we'll issue um, a, a temporary permit. You all, was it his kindness? No, it was God's providence. It was God's plan that they build. In fact, his eye was on them. His, the, the, they face opposition, but the people continue to work as they await a response from Darius. The first time they faced opposition, they stopped work and they, they pursued their own desires, uh, building luxurious homes for themselves. We're going to take a break. We're going to go to build our homes. This time around, though, they face opposition and they do what? They continue working. Can I ask this question? Do you think the discipline of God took its effect? I think it did. Right, they move toward obedience. We're all going to face opposition. With that opposition, as it's ongoing, it, it's discouraging. And in the midst of all of this, we're going to wrestle with our own sinful tendencies. Leaning toward sin, apart from God's grace. I'd like to say that we... We'll all turn from the temptation to sin every time. But you and I both know that our nature is sometimes or, or often bent toward sin. God's desire is for our obedience and often our inclination, at least apart from God's work in us, our inclination is uh, to sin and so God uses discipline in our lives to draw us back to him in obedience. And often that discipline is painful, something in our lives that we wouldn't choose. It's painful, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's not fun, it's not something we would choose at all. But we've got to be encouraged in this. That God disciplines his children for their good and for their holiness. God the Father disciplines his children for their good and their holiness. We looked at this last week, but I want us to look at it again. In fact, if you would, you can turn away from Ezra and Haggai now and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews it's a short letter. We'll spend just a few minutes as we finish out in, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is in the New Testament back half, right? So after the T letters, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, um, and before the book of James. So sandwiched in there somewhere. How is it encouraging that God the Father disciplines his children. How's that an encouragement? 
Look at verse 3. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That's Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We're asked to consider Jesus. Haggai asks us to consider our ways. The, the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus, who endured opposition from sinners. He's our example. He's our go-to when we think about what it must look like for us to endure, for us to persevere through trials, which may be God's discipline. Now, it's not a one-for-one. God did not discipline Jesus because why? It wasn't needed. It wasn't discipline of Jesus, but we learn endurance from what Jesus endured in his suffering, and our suffering may be God's discipline, so we learn endurance, what it looks like. And then the author goes on, look at verse 5. And, you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, not, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son, daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters' children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. He quotes from Proverbs 3, tells us that we're sons and daughters, we're children of God, and that God disciplines his children out of love, not out of anger, not out of cruelty. The fact that God disciplines us out of love is extremely encouraging because it reminds us what? That we're actually sons and daughters. Brought into not, a not, not, not into a family that we deserve to be a part of, but in, into God's family because of Jesus' work, not ours. We have been adopted as sons and daughters. And now God, listen, the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into existence with words, the God who upholds all of creation, who sustains it. The God who, when you look at those mountains, says, yeah, I did that. That God, the God of the entire universe, listen, friends, is your father. We have a heavenly father who out of love, desires his children to obey him and, and model him. God uses discipline in our lives to draw us to obedience in him, to draw us into relationship, to reconcile us back to him, to restore us back to him. If you are not disciplined in your unrepentant sin, you are not a child of God. I, I don't I don't like to say that because it doesn't feel good, but these aren't my words. These are, 
These are words from God's word. If you are not disciplined in your unrepentant sin, you are not a child of God. You're you're illegitimate, you're orphaned, you're alone, you're on your own. You don't hear the words of the Father saying, I'm with you. The author goes on, uh, of Hebrews goes on to give us an argument from, from lesser to greater. If something is true in a lesser sense, then it's, it's absolutely true in a greater sense. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Your earthly fathers disciplined you, and they didn't always do it well, I would guess. From my own experience of being a dad, I would assume that you also experienced a dad like I am a dad. Not always doing it well. But even still, we respect our earthly fathers. That's the lesser part of the argument. Now the greater. In greater ways still, we honor and respect our heavenly father who disciplines us. Why? For our good and and that we would share in holiness. We have a heavenly father who out of love desires his children to obey him and model his holiness. So out of love, he disciplines us. He corrects us for our good because Jesus, our, because of Jesus, our father loves us and desires good for us that we would share in his holiness. Now, now you might say, but, but isn't discipline painful? I get it, right? Our Father loves us, but he, his discipline is painful, and, and that's not encouraging. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is painful and not pleasant. But down the road, as we look back, we see God had a purpose in his discipline of us. His desire is that we are obedient and that he will allow or cause, wherever you land on that theologically, He will allow or cause us to face hardship, to face trial, to face discipline, to produce the fruit of righteousness. Have you, friend, experienced the loving discipline of God in seasons of ongoing sin? Have you experienced that? And while that discipline's painful, it reminds us that we're not illegitimate, we're not orphaned, we're not left alone. We have someone we can say, he's with us. We have a father who wants to be near us. I'll never forget talking to a friend who had experienced God's discipline in in a time of wandering. This was years ago now. Um, Someone who was a part of the church has since moved moved away. So if you're thinking, oh, I know who he's talking about, you don't. Um, Someone who's moved away. I'll never forget talking to him in a season of wandering. And I asked him what he believed God did to discipline him and and bring him to a place of repentance because he had experienced that. 
And his response was extremely mature, extremely insightful. He said, I believe God disciplined me by allowing me to have what I wanted long enough to experience the pain and emptiness that goes along with the decisions I was making. I believe that God allowed me to have what I was actually wanting or thought I was wanting so that I could experience the pain that came along with the emptiness that I was experiencing apart from God. Why? So that I would turn back. That's the action of a loving father who desires his sons and daughters to be near him, not alone, not feeling emptiness. But certainly the people who returned to rebuild the temple didn't completely understand God's discipline of them in the midst of drought that had affected everything in their lives, in the midst of this opposition that had now come, but they were led to obedience through it. We may not understand or comprehend the love of the Father in the midst of of the discipline that, that you're now experiencing. But as we look back, we'll clearly see that we have a father who's called you son, who's called you daughter. What is your loving father doing right now that may be his voice pleading for you to return? How is he saying to you, consider your sinful ways, consider Jesus? Would you think about that this week? You write that down and consider that, discuss that with family and friends. And in community, I think you, you, you won't feel the isolation of where that may land. Do that with some friends and family around you. The joy in all of this is that we are not adopted into God's family because of our own righteousness. Can I say this? Because maybe some of you are thinking this. We are not adopted into God's family Because you responded well in a moment of discipline. Do you hear that? You're accepted, you're adopted because of the righteousness and obedience of Jesus. Our redemption is not based on how we respond. I'll finish with this, I promise. I've said that once already. I'll finish here with just reading this. If you'd just close it up and listen. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 it says in him in, in Jesus in Jesus we have redemption we have we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished Upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Jesus, we have redemption. Grace has been lavished on us, friends. We're not fighting to show, to prove. God, look how I responded to discipline. No, we're called back. We're called back. Son, daughter, come home. Would you consider those things this morning and consider our gracious God who's called us back? Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. 
a new morning that you have given us. And I pray that um, we would be glad and rejoice in you. God, I pray that we would have a desire to be near you and know that in that desire of being near you, you have called us to be your sons and daughters, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has already accomplished. If some of my friends here this morning are wrestling with um, unrepentant sin, God, I, of the Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts, showing them where that is so that they could turn. God, if there are friends who have walked through seasons of unrepentant sin who are now experiencing your loving hand of discipline, I pray that that discipline would take its full effect and that there would be a return to a father who has open arms to accept and say, I'm with you. God, I pray that your, your love would be, um, would be tangibly felt and experienced today. And that the real picture of that would be Jesus and what he's done. He's given his life so that we could be near. Help us to believe that, to rest in that, we ask. All this in the name of Jesus. Amen.